everyone! Welcome to our Oscar conversation, part two of Zeitgeist. Later in the episode, we're going to be talking in depth about Todd Field's tar. But first, we are going to be doing our predictions. The reason that I really am excited for this episode every year is because Niv has a pretty good, accurate prediction of the best picture win. He's predicted, like, pretty much within the past, like, 10 years or so, pretty much across the board, you've gotten over half of your predictions correct, right? Yeah, there was one year that I nearly got all my predictions right, and it was the same year that Moonlight won. And the the reason that my predictions weren't right was because I honestly thought La La Land was going to win Best Picture. And at that moment, I was like, yeah, I was right for everything because that was the year where they accidentally said La La Land. But then they were like, oops, no, it's Moonlight. And I was like, so close, but I'm still happy that Moonlight got it because I liked Moonlight better as a film. I just didn't think that the Academy was going to recognize it. A story that I remember from me and you, Niv, is that we were watching a cooking show once, as we had been apt to do, and the show that we were watching, I was starting to get in my own head a little bit about the um, way that they were making these things. Because, of course, what we would like to do as podcasters as well as in real life is do predictions and to try to figure out how are these people going to react, how are these people going to react, what is the um, sociopolitical itemization of this particular dish. And I was like, oh, you know what? This dish is going to win not because it's the best dish, but because this person is going to like it. But the best dish ended up winning. And you said, I don't remember exactly the words, but you were like, at the end of the day, what matters is, does the food taste good? And all of the rest of it is up for grabs. And that's something I want to come into talking about our Oscar conversation. There are a lot of movies that are in contention for best picture that have a shot at winning. But I would argue in this year, the one that I think is going to take home the cake is the best movie of the year is both of our favorite movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once. I hope so. And I agree, ultimately. But, you know, the Oscars are very fickle. So anything can happen. That's the one thing I've learned about my predictions with the Oscars. Doesn't matter how right you are, you'll still often be wrong about at least one. That's true. That said, let's kick off with actor in a leading role. The current nominees are Austin Butler for Elvis, Colin Farrell in The Banshees of Inisherin, Brendan Fraser in The Whale, Paul Mescal in After Sun, and Bill Knighty in Living. I believe we've spoken already on the podcast, Niv, about Paul Mescal and After Sun. We both really liked that movie. We haven't had much time to talk about Banshees of Inisherin or Elvis, however. Have you seen Elvis yet? Yes, I have. And I thought it was the best, like, Baz Luhrmann film in quite a while. My last favorite film of his was, like, Moulin Rouge. And so I'm glad that it's, like, a return to form in that way. And I thought Austin Butler did a great job. Not so much Tom Hanks, surprisingly, who was also in that movie. It's kind of amazing where when the best actor in the United States does essentially, like, a worse job than an unknown actor who has had his big breakthrough as Elvis Presley. I will never forget when he started running around the halls of that sound stage midway through the movie and he's shouting this isn't Christmas and I thought to myself this is the same man who did Forrest Gump 20 years ago yeah and he was like the treasure of America 
how far you can fall. And yet, he is still in a beloved Christmas hit, the movie about Otto, a man called Otto, I believe. That was well-liked in a lot of middle America. Yeah. So he's still got a fan base. I just think that maybe his performance in Elvis is going to be one of the weaker parts of his canon. He's like Kate Blanchett. He does whatever he wants. Let the man live. Actually, one of the best actors of last year who was also in the really underseen, I think, after Yang is Colin Farrell, who is nominated for Banshees. What a great year he had. He was also in a uh, movie I had been meaning to see. I think 13 Lives is the name. Have you seen Banshees and what did you think about Farrell's performance? I think I told you I saw I saw Banshees and Tar sort of as a double feature, which was a really interesting night. I personally love Banshees because I love Martin McDonough. I mean, we both do. He has like his start as an artist was as a playwright. And, you know, Banshees is very reminiscent of a play, specifically a play I really love by him called The Beauty Queen of Leanne, which also is set in an Irish coastal town. So to me, it was just like Buzz Lerman had like a return to form with Moulin Rouge, I felt Mard McDonough was able to go back to his roots in Banshees of Incheren. And he used actors, you know, that he has used before in his movie in Bruges, both Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. And both of them did an amazing job, including the surprise of Carrie Condon as well, who portrays Colin Farrell's sister. I honestly was floored by her performance. I thought, yeah, the performances across the board were absolutely incredible. And also Barry Keegan surprised me as well. I'll talk about him in a second. But in actor in a leading role, I think my personal pick goes to Paul Mescal and After Sun, but I think Austin Butler has a chance to take home the uh, award for the night. I That's the thing. My heart wants to say Paul Mescal because I think he, he truly deserves it. But because I know sort of the Oscar politics or am <laughs> predicting I know, I don't think it's going to be Austin Butler either, but I, I, I think he has like a better chance than most. I actually think it's going to be Brendan Fraser's role as Charlie from the movie The Whale, who's going to cinch it, actually, because he's been the favorite moving forward, and it's always between him and Austin Butler. But I think that when it comes to the Oscars, they oftentimes recognize more of those somber sort of performances when it comes to the leading performances. And I think the only time that it's not been true has been like Rami Malek's basically tour as Freddie Mercury and Bohemian Rhapsody when he cinched the award. But yeah, I think this year they're probably going to move back to their more traditional thinking of who should get like best actor. So I'm going to go with Brendan Fraser in The Whale. The Whale is a interesting entry because of course uh, it was based on Samuel D. Hunter's play. It feels very much like a play as a movie. Have you seen? Yeah, I have. And I've read the play. Did you like it? I liked the adaptation, but I thought the play was better. Ultimately, that sometimes happens when you are watching a play get adapted. Because sometimes plays are meant to just be plays and not movies. I I remember when we watched Fences together and I was so bored, you know, because I was like, if I was in a theater, I wouldn't be bored. I would be really enjoying this. I think that is, yes, the same issue with a lot of the most recent August Wilson adaptations, including Fences, I think it comes across the same problem. That said, I thought The Whale was just slightly elevated, slightly above, and that's largely due, in fact, to its director, I think. 
So, actor in a supporting role. We've got Brandon Gleason in Banshees of Inisherin, Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway, that is a movie I've not seen, Judd Hirsch in The Fablemans, who we talk about in part one. We spent a lot of time on that one. Barry Keegan, who I want to award my love in Banshees of Inisherin. I also think that seeing him in this movie, oddly enough, makes me more excited for Matt Reeves' Batman 2, which will star him as the Joker. And Kihi Kwan, of course, in Everything Everywhere All at Once. I think that my love in the best actor in a supporting role is the same, and that's Kihi Kwan. I think he's going to take it home. What do you think? I mean, obviously, Kihi Kwan. If he doesn't get it, I will riot. He was he was the best. Talk about a comeback story this film is his comeback story alongside like michelle yeo's as well well let's talk about best actress then actress in a leading role we have michelle yeo for everything everywhere all at once michelle williams in the fablemans who we also talk about in part one andrew riseborough to leslie kind of a contentious nominee due to the fact that to leslie really didn't receive any kind of wide release Ana de armaz in netflix's blonde which we do talk about her performance in our blonde episode Spoiler alert, we didn't really like it. And Kate Blanchett in Tar. So you say uh, Michelle Yeoh is your personal love and the political love as well? I don't know if it's the political love, but I feel like she has been getting most of the awards. But that's not the reason why I'm picking her. I'm picking her because I genuinely think that she gave the best performance. She is gaining a lot of traction. I believe she took home the SAG most recently, but she's also been taking home a lot of other seminal awards building to the Oscars. So I think it is showing that a lot of people, some of whom do overlap in the Oscar voting base, are gunning for Michelle Yeoh. But I I actually do want to cement that I think Tar is a career highlight for Kate Blanchett, and I really, I'm split on it, because on one hand, I think Michelle Yeoh and Everything Everywhere All at Once is a all-star performance for Michelle Yeoh, but also Kate Blanchett in Tar, you know, to me, Kate Blanchett has had an even higher and more uh, exorbitantly awarded career than Michelle Yeoh, so I have mixed feelings, and Everything Everywhere All at Once is an all-star movie, hands down, but on the other hand, Tar is an amazing movie as well. And I agree with that too. I just think that if we talked about the mechanics of like the Oscars and stuff like that, or at least what I predict it will be, I think that because Kate Blanchett has been recognized so often by the Academy with her nominations and with her previous wins, and Michelle Yeoh hasn't really at all, and yet she has been also somewhat of a tour de force in a lot of the stuff that she's been in. I think like the Academy tends to recognize those who haven't won yet or haven't been recognized enough which is a weird thing to say because like the academy needs or says that it it tries to be as objective as possible but that's in itself impossible because the people who decide who wins are people you know that that's the thing they have biases and opinions and feelings about each nomination as well and they cannot be unbiased It's totally impossible. So, actress in a supporting role. We have Angela Bassett in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Hong Chao in The Whale, Carrie Condon for Banshees of Inisherin. Glad we've got another Banshees in there. Jamie Lee Curtis in Everything Everywhere, and Stephanie Hsu in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Are we together in who supporting actors should go to? Jamie Lee Curtis has been getting a lot of love, but I think it should go to Stephanie Hsu. That's the thing. I would have agreed with you up until I saw Banshees of insurance. I would have agreed with you. And I think it's because it's also Carrie Condon, I believe, recently won the BAFTA for her role in the Banshees of insurance. So a part 
So I don't know. I think it's this is where I'm split. You know, just like you were split with Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh, I'm split between Stephanie Hsu and Carrie Condon. I mean, there is the dark horse, which is Angela Bassett, because she recently won the Golden Globes, surprisingly. And she was really amazing in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Extremely true. But, oh my God, it's, it's really tough. This one's really tough because, again, the Oscars can be really political. And all these three women did an amazing, amazing job. But part of me is like okay, there have been criticism against the Oscars for being really white and their choices. And if Carrie Condon wins, the only white woman out of the three wins, out of the three women we just mentioned, it could cause an upheaval. Plus Hong Chow. Plus Hong Chow. But like, that's not what I'm referring to. Out of the three women that I think would win, you know, Carrie Condon is the only white woman among them. That's true. So I think I'll say it like this. My prediction is that if we lived in a utopian world where racism wasn't a thing, uh, I would say Carrie Condon. But I'm going to reserve and say that my educated prediction, because I also think she deserves it as well, is going to be Stephanie Hsu. I think the thing with this category is I personally wouldn't be mad if any of them won because every single entry is so deserving. Bassett made Black Panther Wakanda Forever what it was. Was. Hong Chao has had an amazing year as well. She was in The Menu, which was kind of a sleeper hit, and she ruled that movie. Karen Condon, of course. Jamie Lee Curtis was a wonderful president in Everything Everywhere All at Once. But Stephanie Hsu is like my gal, so I really hope she takes home the big award for supporting actor. Animated feature, we have Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Michelle the Shell with Shoes On, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, The Sea Beast, and Turning Red. I have not seen The Sea Beast or Turning Red. I really loved Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, and I really liked Pinocchio. However, Michelle the Shell with Shoes On is my love. It was on my um, top of the year, so I think that might be the one that I would personally choose for best animated feature. But I would probably say if we're looking at Oscar politics, Guillermo del Toro does seem to be a Academy favorite. So I would pick that with my head. This is a tough year. This is a hard, tough year to predict because I think like the bar is set so high and the politics are so janky. So it's, it's even harder to predict because like old tropes that were easy to predict are almost off the table entirely. So a part of me, I would agree with you. Like my brain is telling me pick Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. That's the obvious choice. But I think it's like a spirited away situation where you can't pick the obvious choice. You have to pick the truly outstanding film, which is Marcel the shell which she's on and i'd be very happy with that cinematography we have a couple of ones we haven't talked about on the podcast previously all quiet on the western front i have not seen have you seen the sniff I have not. So it's the one that I believe won the BAFTA Best Film, and it is a remake in German of the uh, novel, of course. You have Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, which is Inaritu's kind of self-portrait, Elvis, Tar, and Empire of Light, which is the Sam Mendes movie, sort of also in the same vein as we talked about in part one as a love letter to cinema, and that one is is the Roger Deakins entry. Deakins and Sam Mendes have worked together in several capacities over his career, including one of my favorite James Bond movies, Skyfall. So cinematography is a tough one. I think my favorite of these entries is Bardo. However, it's really hard to 
say exactly. Inaritu's Bardo is, I think, nominated basically just for this. He doesn't really get a whole lot of love. I might say Empire of Light because Deacons is so well known, but it's kind of a toss-up here on this category. Have you seen any of these movies and do you have any opinions on them? That's the thing. I've only seen um, Tar and Elvis. So I'm bowing out of this prediction because I just don't have enough information. Totally fair. For costume design, we have Babylon, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. I have not seen Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. I missed that one in the theater. <laughs> Out of this category, it's tough. I think Black Panther is a little bit more CG heavy than costume heavy. I don't really remember a whole lot about the costumes in Black Panther. I would probably have to go for Everything Everywhere All at Once just because of Stephanie Hsu's costume design. Where would you stand here? It's tough because I'm actually not thinking everything everywhere all at once. I'm split between Babylon and Elvis because to me that's like what my brain is trying to say is the correct choice because I think there were much more costumes and more intro intricate costumes in those films than there were in everything everywhere all at once because even though they were in everything everywhere all at once like the costumes were amazing they all felt really strewn together and they just happened to fit the style of the film where it felt like a lot of hard work was put in the because it had a larger budget i think as well but a lot more work was put in the costuming in Elvis and in, and in Babylon. So because Elvis is the king of rock and roll and he had really frilly and cool outfits that you had to absolutely pinpoint in order to make this a, a good biopic, I think that my brain is telling me to pick Elvis. So I'm going to pick Elvis. Elvis makes sense to me too. So would not be surprised if you were on the money there. Okay, directing. We have Martin McDonough and Banshees of Inishurin, The Daniels for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans, Todd Field for Tar, Ruben Ostlin for Triangle of Sadness. I really like Triangle of Sadness. Kind of disappointed it doesn't have a few more of the acting categories on its belt as well, but that's okay. It's been a really great year for movies. That said, I would pick Todd Field for Tar, although McDonough and the Daniels do seem to have a better chance of taking home the directing project. I would say it's gonna be... I would say my head says the Daniels and my heart says Tar. My heart says Daniels and my head says <laughs> good enough can't argue with that <laughs> just because like if it was a really bad year it would go to spielberg and the fablements but i genuinely think like the daniels did a tour de force uh with everything everywhere all at once even though it's like their second outing as directors i think because it's their second outing as directors it's just showcasing how talented they really are so even though like my head is might be pointing to a different direction my heart is directing my head to be like no they deserve it and they better win it documentary feature I only have one of these under my belt. I started Navalny. I actually also started All Quiet on the Western Front, and I didn't finish either of those. Both of them, I think, are really beautifully told, and so I kind of want to watch both of them on a larger screen than I was watching it, which was just my tiny little tablet. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed I've heard is very good, so I would probably tack my 
prediction there. Fire of Love is the one I have seen. Really liked Fire of Love, so I wouldn't be mad about that winning Best Documentary. That said, I wouldn't put money down on this one. Have you seen any of these movies? I've seen Fire of Love, but even that, again, because my information is so limited, I want to bow out as well. This feels like a game show now. For documentary short subject, I'll just give them all lip service. The Elephant Whispers, Haul Out, How Do You Measure a Year, The Martha Mitchell Effect, and Strangers at the Gate. I still need to see all of these movies. For film editing, Banshees of Inishurin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Tar, and Top Gun. I think this category is obvious. Everything Everywhere All at Once has some really crazy cool editing. And amazingly enough, was all done on Adobe Premiere. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I think I would be mad if the awards that I think that belong to everything everywhere at once are awards that they don't get. I will just be automatically mad because I'm like, like even though the bar is set really high this year between all the movies and all the categories that everything everywhere at once excels in, it goes beyond the bar in such a way that the other movies are not even close. And the editing of something like Elvis is actually kind of divisive, even in the um, group of people I went to go see the movie with. So I think that it's got a good shot at taking it home. International feature. I also have a limited purview on this one. Argentina 1985 is the one that won the Golden Globes. All Quiet on the Western Front was the one that took home the best film at the BAFTAs, I believe. Close is the only movie I have seen. EO is a movie with a donkey that looks really cute and I've been meaning to see, but I have not seen yet. And there's also The Quiet Girl, which I don't know a whole ton about. Do you know anything about any of these movies, Niv? No, so bowing out. <laughs> okay, so the makeup and hairstyling category has the following all quiet on the western front the batman black panther wakanda forever elvis and the whale in terms of makeup i might say the batman has got a good shot at it the whale obviously does seem to be the favorite of the oscars i don't have a whole lot of experience in makeup and hairstyling so i don't really have a personal favorite but i would say the whale makes the most sense. It's going to be, for me, it's between Elvis and the whale. I feel like those production values are really high, specifically for the whale in the sense of like that fat suit, because that's where most of the energy was put in, at least for makeup and hairstyling. That's like the main conversation piece of that movie, which is an awful thing to say. No, but, but for better or for worse, you're right. It is something that most of the people are talking about is the prosthetics that Brendan Fraser is wearing. I do think there is not nearly enough discussion about his actual performance and instead on the way he is sort of portraying as a beacon of the fat community, which might on one hand be a little unfair to put all of that on just one person's head. On the other hand, I do think it is important that we actually give visibility to like real people of that category, the like 500 plus obesity category, like that is something that we only reserved for unscripted TV. And I do think that is really unfair. But that said, The Whale, I thought was a fine movie. Oh, do you have something to say? Well, I didn't say my prediction, Jordan. What was your prediction? The Whale. For music, original score. <laughs> we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Babylon, Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and The Fablemans. I would have to say Babylon is my pick for musical score. That's where I have to stake all of my chips because I thought Babylon's music was so, so cool. And such an interesting interpolation of some of the themes, literally the motifs scored in La La Land. 
Yeah, I mean, Justin Hurwitz is like a master of scoring music. Every time I hear his music, I am just like, he's just like John Williams, just give him an award and call it a day. He doesn't even need to come to the Oscars, just ship him the Oscar statuette before the Oscars even happen. For music original song, kind of an odd year for it. Yeah. Some of these songs I'm actually not really familiar with at all. Applause, Tell It Like a Woman, not familiar with. This is a life, obviously, from every, for, Everywhere All at Once. Lift Me Up from Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Hold My Hand from Top Gun Maverick. And Natu Natu for RRR. So that is the five. Natu Natu does seem to be kind of a fan favorite. So I would say that does seem to be in the bag. Yeah, I, I want to agree with you. I think Not Not To is going to win. But like if Rihanna's song was just a tad bit better because it's like her comeback song after her pregnancy hiatus was better, she would have cinched it. But the fact that it's like so mediocre and I think a lot of people know it's so mediocre, it almost gives Not To Not To the ultimate edge it needs to win. And I will um, always remember it because the first time I watched Black Panther Wakanda Forever, it was late at night. I tried to go watch it in the theater on one of the first days it opened, and I fell asleep right before the big battle and woke up to Rihanna's Lift Me Up. Not a very strong starter, in my opinion. Production design, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, Babylon, Elvis, and The Fablemans for design. I think I will have to go for Cameron with uh, Avatar The Way of Water, personally. Do you have an opinion on production design? Yeah, if I had watched All Quiet on the Western Front, I would have picked it because just on what I have seen from it, like the trailers and clips that I've seen from it, like it uses a lot of practical effects alongside, um, you know, visual effects. So I would have honestly thought that, that it had like a strong chance. It does have a strong chance of winning based on what I do know about it. But because I haven't seen it and I have seen Avatar The Way of the Water, it feels like it's a given that I have to pick Avatar The Way of the Water because its production design was also an insane okay now we're getting to the more understated ones alongside documentary the short films which i actually saw all of in the theater just the other day there is for short film animated on oscar an ostrich oscar an ostrich told me the world is fake and i think i believe it which is a claymation movie where they sort of play alongside themes that feel reminiscent of the matrix this guy is in an office and he begins to realize that his world is a sham and he is an animated character in a film my year of which is a rotoscoped movie about a woman's early sexual experiences ice merchants which is my personal favorite which is this really soft sort of monochrome red and blue movie really beautiful really well told very well paced the flying sailor which is a deeply strange movie and the boy the mole the fox and the horse which is apple's pick apple tv plus submitted this one and i did not like it very much i thought it was a little hokey it tries to mimic winnie the pooh but it ends up all sounding like a hallmark card <laughs> not very good but that's just my opinion i think it if i had to guess an ostrich seems to be the most ambitious alongside of my year of have you seen any of these films and do you have any opinions about this I do not, because I haven't seen any of them, so I have no horse in this race, and in those races with either short films. 
Or an ostrich, for that matter. Yeah, or an ostrich. For short films, live action, which I don't believe you've seen any of either. I haven't. (laughs) Is an Irish goodbye, which is an Irish film. (laughs) Uh, Funny enough, it has two brothers, and one of the brothers has Down syndrome, and they are both mourning the death of their mother and find a note that she left behind. Evilu, which is a pick from... Okay, so Evilu takes place in Greenland, and it's based on a Danish graphic novel. Really, very pretty cinematography. Hands down the best cinematography. And if I had a, a head pick, that would be that one, although it is not quite my personal favorite. That one has to go to Night Ride, which is, I believe, a Norwegian. It's a Scandinavian film, and it is so funny. <laughs> I really liked it. The Red Suitcase is a film that I do have to shout out because the director was actually at the screening that I went to. Really interesting kind of thriller-esque movie about a woman in an arranged marriage arriving at the airport to meet her husband for the first time. And then finally, the Disney pick, La Pupelle which is a movie that kind of reminds me a little bit of like Madeline with a bunch of girls at a orphanage run by nuns and it's a Christmas movie. So it's about their day on Christmas and sort of the funny things that happened. And it's a cute movie. It's very fun, very tense scene involving a cake. So again, if I had to pick, Evilu is my pick from my head. My heart pick is Night Ride. For sound, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, The Batman, Elvis, and Top Gun Maverick. I would say I don't really have a heart pick for this. I would say Top Gun Maverick does seem to be the sound technical category win. What do you think? Part of me wants to say either the Batman or Elvis because I remember the sound in Batman was really great. It was actually one of the major parts I actually really enjoyed about the movie. But again, I think it's going to be Elvis because that movie was all about the celebration of a person's sound and sort of style, which was Elvis Presley. They try to translate it in their their sound editing as well. All great picks as well. For visual effects, All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, The Batman, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and Top Gun Maverick. Can we say it at the same time? Let's actually do that. All right. One, two, three. Avatar. Avatar. No, that wasn't at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) For writing adapted screenplay, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Glass Onion Living, Top Gun Maverick, and Women Talking. I really liked the writing in Women Talking, so I would say uh, conceivably I could see that winning. My heart is in Glass Onion. What do you think? It's similar. It's similar because like I because it's also educated because I think the original screenplay was won by um, Ryan Johnson when he did the first Knives Out. And I watched Glass Onion and the writing was still top form. But I think that based on, you know, the fact that women talking is actually based off a novel and you're actually adapting from a novel as opposed from to adapting like a sequel, then I think it's more right to give it to women talking. And I think the Academy recognizes that. Okay, second to last entry. Writing original screenplay is The Banshees of Inishurin, 
Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, and Triangle of Sadness. I gotta go for Triangle of Sadness here. This one is one of my faves. Loved this movie. But... I mean, Banshees and Everything Everywhere are both great movies, too, particularly the last one I said. What do you think? Uh, I think you picked the Dark Horse, personally. I mean, actually, The Fablemans would have been the true Dark Horse here. But I'm also split between Everything Everywhere all at once and the Banshee of Inisherin. Inisherin. Well, words. But I want to actually give it to the Banshees of Inisherin, just because I, I feel like the Academy does this thing where even though they recognize a movie for being great, they sometimes don't award it anything except for one category. And that's the category that's tied intrinsically to the auteur or and slash the director who's involved. And since Martin McDonough not only directed this film, but wrote this film and his entire identity as, as a writer first, again, we, as we mentioned, he was a playwright in the beginning of his career. That's what made who, him who he is. I think the Academy not only recognizes that, but I think rewards that. So ultimately, I think it's going to be The Banshees of Inisherin and Martin McDonough. So then we are heading to Best Picture. So Best Picture has 10 nominees, as has been the case for a number of years now. It has the following in alphabetical order. All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. Okay, let's try it again. One, One two, two, three. three. Everything, everything Everywhere. Every- we're all, all at once. At once. <laughs> that one's a little harder to do all at the same time. Okay. But we did it. <laughs> because it was everything, everywhere, all at all once. All at we once. Just, if this doesn't win, I <laughs> I won't watch the Oscars for two years. I will ride in the street. Let's hope not, because that would be a very lonely follow-up episode in 2024 for our podcast. I'm going to have to find someone else <laughs> to take on this role for one episode. So a lot's riding on everything everywhere. That said, we are going to take a quick break and listen to some music. Quick spoiler alert for the second section of our podcast. We are going to be talking about the movie Tar from Todd Field and Kate Blanchett. So stay tuned and enjoy some music. The film Tar is rated R for some language and brief nudity, but includes several adult situations that may be triggering if you have experienced the kind of abuse the film depicts. Listener discretion is advised, as this content may not be suitable for all audiences, especially young listeners. Parental guidance is recommended. Okay, let's talk Tar. So... Lydia Tarr is the main character and the subject of this movie, and she is very well respected in the community, right? So she is the conductor and apparently the first female conductor for the Berlin Philharmonic, and we ultimately also follow her downfall. We follow the way that she slowly ends up turning into a monster, 
Some of it has happened before the movie has begun, and some of it probably continues after the movie has ended. It has garnered a number of uh, Academy Award nominations, as we've previously talked about. And the main one that I do want to focus on is Kate Blanchett herself, the eponymous subject. She is introduced early on as having won the prestigious, well, something that is in recent years really heralded as EGOT, which means that you've won a Grammy, you've won a Tony, you've won an Emmy, and you've won an Oscar. Kate Blanchett herself has actually won the Academy Award twice. One for Blue Jasmine and one for The Aviator. And as of today, she has been nominated an additional six times, not as a winner, but as a nominee. But I remember her first breakout in The Lord of the Rings as Galadriel. So that is my experience with her. But she even started prior to that doing Mamet and Shakespeare before moving to the screen. What was your first introduction to Kate Blanchett as an actor, Niv? Similar to you, it was Lord of the Rings, and I only really started noticing her in her Queen Elizabeth movies, where she played Queen Elizabeth I a couple of times, and she almost became like synonymous with that person, that historical person, in terms of like an actor portraying that person for quite a bit of time. And of course, I watched The Aviator, and I think like when she really started hitting the zeitgeist, it's when, you know, she was in that Thor Ragnarok movie and she was like the main villain and then she started really appearing almost in every sort of movie under the sun because up until that point Lord of the Rings was sort of the only big blockbuster she was in and she wasn't like the main character and as soon as she did Thor Ragnarok you know she also was like the second leading person in the remake of Ocean's Eleven. I guess it was technically a prequel in some capacity. Unclear. I did not see Ocean's Eight. It's like a weird spinoff. There is some connection to the original trilogy, like not the original movie, but like the Steven Soderbergh trilogy, because a few characters like interchange with each other. So in a lot of ways, it's actually like a sequel. It's more appropriate to call it like a spinoff. And um, yeah, she kind of opened that Pandora's box. And now she's doing kind of every type of movie under the sun. Of course, she worked briefly on the Pinocchio movie that we covered a few months ago or a month or so. That's Kate Blanchett. I'm glad that she's still doing these kind of hard-hitting things. That said, there are a number of uh, other, you know, or at least one other person in Tar that kind of got started doing a historical piece, particularly a piece that was also featuring lesbians, which is Nina Haas. Or no, no, I was thinking of Naomi Merlant. My apologies. Nina Haas is um, Sharon, Lydia's wife. So Naomi Merlant plays Francesca, who she got started in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. She's been in a few other films, but she's relatively new as an ingenue in the filmic world. She tends to go for pieces like like Tar, which are really pretty hard-hitting, maybe a little bit slower in tone than something like Thor Ragnarok, certainly. But it also, I would say, is similar to Tar. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is meaningful and charged, likes to take its time, scores often with silence. Whereas, and you wouldn't think of that with Tar, but frequently the sound is what you call diegetic, which means that it is something that takes place in the world of the film rather than a soundtrack that sort of underscores the film and that would be non-diegetic so example in the marvel world is 
Guardians of the Galaxy frequently utilizes what's called diegetic sound. So Merlant plays Francesca, Tar's assistant, a little distant from Lydia, we find out early on, but she is still attempting to engage somewhat, particularly because she wants to become who Lydia Tar was. And this kind of dynamic is something that I think plays a huge part in the film. Um, there's a complex feeling between the two, and it seems like Francesca feels like there's always this tenuous line that she's afraid to cross with her boss. We don't know exactly what that is early on. It becomes pretty clear later. And so frequently happens in employer-employee relationships. I think of the scene in Parasite where the head of the household, the patriarch of the rich family, says that there is um, a line that you can feel but you can't really speak of. And it's something that the underclass Merlant represented here can't cross over that. And so I feel like that we feel so tangible in this movie, and yet still she wants to become what Kate Planchette has, and she wants to be the next in command, but she's always on edge. So the film opens with Adam Gobnick, who is a real-life guy, very well-known in the art world and in many worlds. He's kind of one of those guys, similar to the dude who ran um, Inside the Actor Studio, who just has, like, this presence about him that says, I like to meet with artistic Oscar types. So it uh, also, before that, has this unknown character continually watching Lydia, ever-present, commenting on her jeeringly. It's one of the more expressionistic moments of the film, um, and doesn't really ever go towards anything other than symbolism. That said, what did you think about the opening of Tar? I thought it was an effective way to showcase her character, you know, of Lydia Tar. And I thought Kate Blanchett was perfect for the role from the moment you see her because she already commands such a presence because it's essentially a person interviewing a really, really famous person who has reached sort of their zenith in their career. And I mean, Lydia Tar is, of course, a fictional composer poser, but Kate Blanchett isn't. She herself is like an actress who's reached her zenith. So in a lot of ways, it just felt like a person interviewing Kate Blanchett because she already commands, you know, that sort of magnanimous status, similar to Jack Conrad when we were talking about Babylon. So that entire period where they're talking, and it's for a long time, they that interview is a pretty sizable section of that first part of the movie. It feels like it's been oh, quite a while, but I think it's about 10 minutes or so. It's not super long. It's it's um actually pretty average in the scene length of Tar as a whole, but it does sort of, each time I watched it, it, it does kind of shock the system, particularly because the opening crawl is also something that confounds in some ways. You know, an interview like that could also be 10 minutes. You know, it wouldn't be that crazy for it to also just be 10 minutes minutes on like a stage if there's like multiple speakers and interviewees happening or it happens in stages it felt like you were watching it as a youtube clip you know of someone interviewing a famous person as opposed to you watching a movie absolutely so you immediately buy into the fact that this woman is really famous both by the fact that it's Kate Blanchett portraying this character and just the way that it's shot you become immediately invested in the sort of thematic work that the film is setting up 
Yes, absolutely. It does, I think, challenge the viewer in many, many ways. We also learn some important things in this scene in terms of the mechanics of what the plot actually unveils. She's talking about her primary influences, Mahler, whose Fifth Symphony she's anxiously preparing to conduct. And also she speaks in detail about Leonard Bernstein, who, interestingly enough, I believe Bernstein himself as a biopic in the works, which will be coming, I believe, later this year. Yes, with Bradley Cooper. And I mean, in this movie, it's interesting because Bernstein himself is like a mentor to Lydia Tarr. You know, he's someone who apparently like interacted with her of course fictionally like Lydia Tarr is a fictional character but it's just really interesting that the movie tries to convince you that she's a real person that exists by tying her to other real people and operating under like actual real places and doing real music music that is integral to the mythology of composing and classical music as a whole right that Mahler symphony that she focuses on that fifth symphony that sort of pushes her entire motivation in the film is just like the last one she's doing I believe she already did all the other ones the fifth symphony just happens to be the last one and it's because she's also shadowing Bernstein's take on Mahler's compositions shadowing that's a good word for it the interesting thing about Lydia Tarr as a character is that she has sort of two sides of her Adam Gopnik speaks early in the film about the way in which Lydia began her career as some what more of a maverick and experimentalist. But by the time we see the character in this film, she has become much and much more religious about the Western canon. And we see that in a few scenes after this talk. But in the first couple of minutes of the actual film, after we watch the opening credits and that cell phone moment, which are, I think, also just like important tone setters. We see the way that Lydia presents herself in her talk with Gopnik and the way that she reveals her desires to the outside world in a way that is digestible which is something that talks to two different quadrants, right? It not only speaks to how she is as a woman in a male-dominated field, but furthermore, how she is as a person with these eccentricities and with these neuroses that slowly start to unveil and break apart as the film progresses. You mentioned the main trick is that she feels like a real person. And I would say, furthermore, that Tar almost ends up feeling like a biopic for a person that never existed. You know, the eccentricities sort of portray the classic, like, I am so smart, I am so talented that I'm beyond rational and normal, or the norm thinking, the normal way of thinking. So her eccentricities just sort of outline her as like this brilliant genius, as opposed to someone that is sort of lost touch with her humanity. The things that sparked her passion for music and composing to begin with, which was like being experimentalist and being sort of a maverick in the sort of industry and world, because she quickly realized that in order to be successful, one must not only abide by those rules, one must worship those rules. 
And of course, the film talks about it. That's like the theme. The film actively critiques that way of thinking because, of course, it has to do with what we talked about with Babylon in particular, that corruption of power and fame. And how it requires you to make sacrifices, right? I recommend if people skipped to part two to go check out our part one talk about Babylon to learn more, although there is a few spoilers in there as well. But the scene that I feel like is the emotional core actually dissects that in detail, which is the scene with no cuts. Several of the early scenes actually have very few cuts, including the one we just talked about. And I thought it was very enveloping, especially once we get to this scene. One of my favorite scenes, actually I think the heart of the piece, comes when a young POC student speaks up at a masterclass that Lydia speaks at at Juilliard. And this child is a person who is very interested in bucking the Western canon. He's very interested in the more fringe elements of composition and of conducting. And I think he effectively, by the end of the masterclass, completely dismisses Lydia Tower outright. And what's interesting about Lydia herself is that she almost seems as if she's talking to a younger version of herself, that person that did have to make these hard choices prior to the beginning of the film. Uh, what did you think about the what she was talking about in regards to whether or not it is worthwhile to study these old masters. I know in playwriting, and particularly within the last uh, 100 years, there are many people we see every day a new person comes out. Most recently in the news, it's been Roald Dahl, who they've been talking about possibly censoring his work to be a little bit more palatable. I mean, that's the big academic question that's happening right now. Can you separate the person from the art if that person happened to be horrible or if that art doesn't age well with the current time that we're living in? And, you know, my feelings about it are pretty mixed, especially because, like, for example, in that scene, the way it was shot and the way that the scene was written, I actually agreed with Lydia Tarr's perspective because, you know, that entire scene, the student essentially rejects the idea of studying and appreciating G.S. Bach's music. And his argument is that he's like a white male composer who was not a very good person in his time. And Tar argues, well, you know, it's not necessarily about just a person. It's about what that person has made. It's about the art, you know, he has given to the world that in itself should be independent from him. But at the same time, it should be recognized that a piece of him, his humanity, his being that kind of awful person is part of what made that music great to begin with. And it's a very interesting and very persuasive argument because humanity is ugly and art can be ugly too, but art can be beautiful and ugliness can make beautiful art. It's sort of like very cyclical in that way. And that's why as an artist who constantly tries to be a better human being every day, it's maddening. It causes me to be insane all the time because, you know, the... (laughs) Just the other day, me and my friend were talking about like the new Hogwarts video game and how it portrays J.K. Rowling, you know, is against 
trans people. Like she actively funds anti-trans legislation in the UK. And even though the game is not outright anti-trans, the fact that she gets paid by the funds of this money means that this game supports her. So that in itself is like an icky situation because you can support these video game developers who are not anti-trans and support this video game because you love Harry Potter. But at the end, you know, all that money is going to a person that is actively harming trans communities in the United Kingdom as well as around the world with her views. I would uh, highly recommend people check out a person named Adam Ragusia, who typically does food-related content. He actually did an entire podcast just about the J.K. Rowling situation and the nature of cancel culture. He also dives a little bit into that in terms of um, food entertainment, if you guys are ever interested in food like uh, Niv and I are. But yeah, no, I would agree in the way that if it's someone who is alive, you are actively funding whatever weird ventures they're on, which in the case of J.K. Rowling includes anti-trans legislation in the case of Kanye West would involve you know, things that are more immediate to the United States in terms of politics. And so it is a worthwhile conversation to be had. On the other hand, there are some things that are so deep-rooted, right? In transparency, Niv and I both attended Columbia College Chicago, and we both went to an institution where the music program, which we did not either attend, spent a lot of time with a Bachtonian type of study. The way that they enter music theory is by utilizing heavily the works of Johann Sebastian Bach. And so that in itself is one of the tough things. It's like if you have a master who is creating work that is problematic yet sets a template for what comes later, if you are a studied master Theoretically, one ought to dive in there somewhat. It's only a matter of whether you are able to then move beyond it or sort of seep yourself in it. And unfortunately, I think Lydia Tarr does the latter. And in talking to this young kid, she, or rather a, um, an adult kid, I would say. Um, she talks like she has something to prove, right? She's high profile enough that she doesn't need to be talking town to him like this, and yet she's really actively kind of antagonizing him, and you can see her kind of slowly start to get upset, and all the while, it's from a gaze of trying to help, trying to assist, trying to mentor. But at the end of the day, I feel like it's ultimately working to soothe her own ego and solidify the feeling that she's spending her career doing something that is important and meaningful and then shirking objectivity, which she does in a much more sinister way later as well. Yeah, and I think that's just another trick the film does really well, because that scene will divide anyone of their opinion. Like if you're super, super, super like on the other end of liberalism, you believe that what the kid is saying is right. You know, we should sort of dismantle this idea that we should study people from the past who were problematic, even though they're masters of both their time and our time, you know, like there is an argument to be made there. But of course, a person like me lies on the other end of that purely based on my own sort of like hunger to always understand and hunger to explore everything. Because that's what I mean, 
for me, what Lydia Tarr was saying was ultimately very persuasive. I actually sat there and I thought the kid was annoying. And I went to the same school as you. I went to Columbia College, Chicago, a very, very outspoken liberal school. And I went to Northwestern University for my grad school, also an outspoken liberal school. And I'm a very, very liberal person myself, especially when it comes to art. But I think that it's because I'm a writer. And of course, my ego is connected to art itself, because I want my art to be separated from me as well, because I want it to be studied outside of who I am as a person, even though it's intrinsically connected to who I am as a person. I have this obsession for uh, that my art should stand up for itself, if that makes sense. Sure. But at the same time, a artist's process can inform their product and I think that is also worth studying. And on that note, I want to talk about Todd Field because Todd Field is the creator of Tar. He both wrote did and acted throughout the mid-90s into the early 2000s, but kind of seemingly disappeared early in the 2010s, late 2000s from the spotlight entirely. And it's with Tar that his career is resurrected alongside Kate Blanchett. He actually wrote the draft of Tar uh, during the pandemic over only three months, believe it or not. And that said, it's likely that he was thinking about the story for many years and that this was sort of just a way for him to get it all down. And so he did and ended up obviously producing and creating this work. And interestingly enough, if I were to psychoanalyze Todd Field a little bit outside of Tar itself, one of his big watershed moments as an actor was in Eyes Wide Shut. And seemingly, a character obsessive like Stanley Kubrick would play a large role, particularly because Field worked very closely with Stanley Kubrick, wanting to later become a director, which he succeeded at. He's also a huge fan of Mahler's Fifth Symphony as well, which is why it plays such a large role in the plot. That's no accident. That said, the big thing that we have to talk about here about Tar is the idea of cancel culture, right? So if I were to describe this film in short, I would say it's a film about cancel culture. But the interesting thing is, the question comes, is it? There are many parts about the film that feel intrinsically so relevant and so vital now, yet none of it really feels like it's making the kind of statement you usually see in films, um, often to lesser effect in my opinion, that actually tackle cancel culture head on. Which makes me wonder, is the best way to take on this issue, the way that Tar's doing it, from a perspective of empathy and a perspective of maybe seeing the world in shades of gray? Because these characters, in particularly the scene we just talked about, I don't think either of them are correct. One of them is condescending and a bit too brash and often a bit too friendly. We see uh, much later in the film the way that she gets clip-showed and turned into a Twitter meme because of what she said to the kid. And, of course, they completely destroy what she was actually trying to say initially. But we do see what she did wrong, which is that she was grabbing onto the kid without asking permission. She was talking down to him. Of course, she made him so upset that he left the class. And so all of those things put together, you can see how, in retrospect, watching the film, that scene is actually maybe a bit more nefarious than we initially thought. But the interesting thing is, is that when you watch the film, the first time you see that event take place, you're cheering for Lydia. But the second time, we're in a very different place with the character. 
Yeah, and I agree with that. She, in that scene, she, to us, the audience, is acting in a way that is representative towards like a school of thought of like, no, we can't cancel everything. We should be able to study everything because that's the only way we could get in touch with all of art as opposed to just judging it by the person itself. But then it's, as you said, when you give it a second watch and you watch the rest of the movie, you realize that she is saying a lot of these things because she is speaking out of fear. Absolutely. Because she herself feels like one day she will get canceled for her awful, awful choices that she's made. But it is fascinating as well because both people are not necessarily right because they're both ends of that spectrum of like one we should not judge people at all we should study them and and the student is like no you know like these are awful people and just because they made amazing art doesn't excuse the fact that we should celebrate them and like i said it's important to understand that that conversation is ultimately very nuanced because art is humanity and humanity is art both cannot live without each other and sometimes it's important to recognize that sometimes the best of art is made by people that are not great because they're putting things that they feel and they know and they've experienced in their work and i'm not saying that's true to everyone i just say that a lot of the things that power stories anyway is pain. And so if you can draw on your suffering and pain, that makes it that much more real, right? You can draw from your personal experiences. People often say that pain is art and art is pain and you have to do that. And I think oftentimes an artist will be, like Lydia Tarr, just a little bit disorganized. They don't really know how to properly deal with their personal lives because they are so singularly focused on one thing. And that's absolutely true with Lydia. And that is, I think, what ends up creating her downfall ultimately, right? Absolutely. She targets, and now, as I previously mentioned, we are going to be getting into spoilers. Olga is the young cellist who ends up taking on one of the smaller roles in the orchestra, but a major role in Lydia's life. And over time, Lydia Tarr ends up developing somewhat of a parasitic relationship with Sophie Cower's character, who, by the way, she has not acted in anything else currently. She is, uh, I think, predominantly a cellist that moved into the world of acting in Tarr. So that said, this character is a huge, huge part of the story, because it showcases Lydia Tarr's darker side. And we get hits of it. Which is that she is a predator, right? Yes, exactly. And we get hints of it through sort of her conversations with a previous person that she has essentially made a victim. You know, a student of hers that she's essentially cut off ties with, who eventually commits suicide because Lydia Tarr has not only cut off ties with her, she has also made sure that she can't move up anywhere within the world of music. Lydia Tarr has poisoned her reputation. She does the thing, you know, that we only hear horror stories about in the industry. Person of power who actively uses all their strings to make a person who's on the rise absolutely nothing and disappear. I mean, Harvey Weinstein constantly threatened people like that. You know, that's... And did it. 
And that's the thing. The thing you were saying is that, is this a cancel culture movie? I think it still is. I think it's just really interesting because it's not a movie about the victims of the abuser, but about the abuser themselves. And that's what this movie does really well. It doesn't try to make you forgive or argue for Lydia. It's just trying to humanize her in a way that's just understandable. Not in a way that's like, again, an abuser is, is an abuser. There is no understanding of that. But it can be said that ultimately Lydia is human and when she loses everything after being at the top of her field and working her entire life to reach that top and then due to her own very awful mistakes she's brought down there is something tragic about that not in the sense that she's not deserving of it but the fact that on the other end she is a human being that has created arguably strong art that people love and study and she has had to go through a lot of pain and suffering herself being a woman in this male dominated field to get where she is and ultimately the movie constantly makes the argument that she wasn't like this initially, but the industry itself corrupted her. We were talking about a real-life figure. Harvey Weinstein was very similarly not abusive prior to his rise with power. Harvey Weinstein was not born the man that became this shadow figure. He only had records of this kind of behavior in moments when he had absolute power, and he utilized it in that way. I don't know if Tar really does explain the corruption of the soul, but it in some way allows for us to make peace about the fact that abusers are still people, which is, I think, an important thing to realize. And a lot of the stuff where whether abusers should be forgiven is a very, very deep and hard to navigate conversation. And I don't think Tar does any work to, like, you know, and it doesn't have any interest in attempting to deal with rehabilitation because Lydia at the end of the movie is not rehabilitated. Lydia is simply just broken down to a lesser version of who she once was. Yeah, she has been punished, punished by the world itself. And like I said, I think the film is effective in the sense that it stays true to the victims. And I think that's a really important thing to say. It's not about forgiving the abuser, but it's understanding how like an abuser becomes an abuser. And I think that's what me and Jordan are trying to outline here in this very delicate situation because no one should suffer abuse, let alone this kind of abuse in an already abusive type of industry where it'd be music or film or even theater. Well, and Todd Field frames something that is undoubtedly unforgivable. There is a very limited sort of spectrum of how people react. But even her wife, played by Nina Haas, who I had um, previously mentioned briefly, she's the first chair in the orchestra, right? So already we get a sense that Lydia is utilizing her power in these very particular ways to maybe get what she wants. You know, it's no accident that her wife just happens to be her second in command in art as well as in life. Uh, it's also an interesting thing to say that she might also be an unintentional accomplice. She absolutely does act as an accomplice. And by the end of the film, her qualm with Lydia is not that she did all of these horrible things. The fact of the matter is, a woman who Lydia's wife is her wife, right? She will stand by her regardless. And that is the promise you make in marriage, right? So no matter how terrible things get, Sharon stands by her wife, regardless 
sense of how she feels. And you can see it in her face when she is very clearly being cheated on in a public setting. She allows it to happen. The only qualm she has, and the reason why she ends up leaving her wife, is because it wasn't honest. Sharon simply just wants to know what Lydia's doing. That sort of relationship awakened something in me that I didn't understand previously, but I understood better because of this film. Remember when the whole like Brett Kavanaugh hearings were happening and talking about like how he there was a big question, a big not only question like it, I, I personally believe it happened based on the testimony itself. I know this is not a political channel, but this is a political sort of episode today. I think we have to get there. Yeah. So when it was happening, I remember the cameras always moving to his wife in the background, Ashley Estes. And I always thought to myself, how does she feel? Can she forgive him? Can How can she stand by him if he did this truly awful act? But watching this movie, it made me not empathetic to Ashley Estes, but it made me understand how impossible being in that situation is because a person you love has been accused of doing something insanely awful. And then you have to listen to how he did it, not only like through another person, but on live television and media and in this court. And then you still have to carry that around you. And how can you not stand by that person at a point because they're equally suffering? To move from that to the other side of it, right? You have that element, which is the unforgivable sin. But on the other hand, there is the Robespierrean court of public opinion, which a lot of people have quite fairly hated on in that respect, too. And I think you can hold both truths to be evident. Absolutely. Because on one side, you have Lydia Tarr, and on the other side, you have the way in which she is being viewed, which is equally unfair, and I think is best shown by these brief text messages that you see from an unknown character on screen. Initially, I believed it to be Naomi Merlan's character Francesca, but it, the character actually does appear after Francesca completely ghosts Lydia. She, you know, disappears, she moves out of her apartment, she runs away, I think, out of fear. And so this character remains, which makes me think that it is this symbolic character of a panopticonic texture. So, like, a figment of Lydia's mind, effectively, a representative of the ever-present suffocating voice of the internet itself, giving rise to subtle but important anxieties for what it means to be watched. And in that vein, I also wanted to read something from a writer, Emrata favorite, Rain Fisher Kwan, who uh, I have been following for quite some time, and she wrote a piece last year about the way in which this happens, specifically from a place of TikTok. And she writes, The algorithms are optimized to cannibalize real people in order to feed its users' appetites, like a drug user who needs to keep upping their dosage to get a rush. The public is bored of corporate reality TV and scripted influencer drama now to get their fix. The stakes need to be higher. They need to be not only watchers, but active participants in a story that unfolds before their eyes. And nothing is more authentic than, like Lydia Tarr, a story whose characters don't want to be there in the first place. So how do you feel like that specifically relates to the way in which the internet plays a part in the later sections of Tarr? 
I mean, I think that it's interesting that that's how you saw it. I thought it was operating on the ghost of Lydia's victim that started this whole like Lydia's fall from grace because Krista Taylor, you know, is the shadow character. She's the one who messages her in the beginning and then she commits suicide. And then we are led to assume that Lydia is still conversing with her ghost who represents like not only the court of public opinion, but just like her accuser, the actual accuser that is representative of the world turning against her. And furthermore, her wrongdoings. It's essentially like you reap what you sow. That's what Krista Taylor represents. And Francesca, you know, it's also interesting because she operated on a quid pro quo situation because she was also an accomplice with Lydia to sort of tarnish not only Krista, but a bunch of other women as well. And Francesca is also an abuser, but just like how when you're like both criminals, but you make like a deal with the police to get pardoned. That's what Francesca does when she realizes that Lydia will never grant her what she wants, which is um, that fame and status that Lydia has because Lydia will always view Francesca as an assistant because there is that beautiful moment where she's up for like that second composer position, like that that second chair composer position. And Lydia gives it to a man instead of Francesca, who thought that it was going to happen due to their relationship. Right, the quid pro quo thing that was understated. And you mentioned that is the entire contract, the unspoken social contract. And once that contract is violated, there she goes. Yeah, she not only goes, but she sells her down the river because she like there is another thing that's important to outline here. There was a smoking gun, which was the email chains between Lydia Tarr, Francesca and Krista Taylor showcasing this predatory behavior Lydia had. And Francesca used it to not only tear Lydia down, but also protect herself from being shown as an accomplice to this. So ultimately, I feel like the movie Tarr is a minefield of social commentary. But I also think it's one of the best movies of last year. It is really well acted, even from the novice actors, and really just a wonderful way to dissect these really hard to even conceptualize topics. The idea of an abuser being the main character of a film has sparked a lot of controversy with this movie. But ultimately, I think it's really well done. It made me think what would happen if Amadeus was made today, which is my favorite movie, as you know. And Amadeus has that are very flawed human beings who I personally think also deserve, they would also be canceled today. I I truly believe Mozart would be canceled today if he had lived today. And so would Salieri for other reasons. But I also think that, you know, we talked about Babylon and the Fablemans, how they told their stories And Fablemans didn't say anything. And that's the thing that frustrated me. Whereas Babylon tried to say a lot, but it just didn't jive well together, which also frustrated me. But Tar does a good job at trying to say something that's really important, but in a really different way, in a really concise and succinct way that really challenges our way of thinking in 2023. And to me, that's what art is. And that's why I unfortunately will always feel like I belong in the camp of like uncomfortable art and uncomfortable people are uncomfortable artists challenge the way we think so we should study them as opposed to negate them entirely because it's their humanity that sort of not only moralize of like what you shouldn't do but how you can take their art and make it i don't know 
you can study it and still make it better for the people around you and mankind around you. It's such a slippery slope. I can't like no one can answer this sort of thing, especially in what, 40 minutes in a podcast. <laughs> Certainly not. So forgive me, viewers. I'm, it's just my ego speaking. I also think that the film does a really good job at something that we didn't yet mention, which is Lydia is a predatory monster, but she, at the same time, she's a genius, you know, in her craft. But it doesn't mean that she's inherently evil to everyone she's around. She's pretty much like condescending to everyone around her, but the only person she isn't is her adopted daughter. And I think that that's also a thing we should talk about before we wrap up. The fact that Todd Field smartly puts, you know, her daughter character in the story to showcase like yeah Lydia is capable of loving someone you know without needing a quid pro quo from them because every other relationship she has she has a pre-established quid pro quo with them but the love she showcases to her young daughter is limitless and in a lot of ways is another trick that the film does to try to get you to humanize with her but I think it goes beyond just a trick I think it just puts you in that comfortable seat where you realize just like Ashley Estes and Brett Kavanaugh that sometimes abusers truly do love someone in their lives and they don't abuse them. Those people still love the abusers because they don't really see them as abusers because they just see the people they love. And again, that's an uncomfortable thing to think of, especially when you're viewing it from the outside. That moment is really intense and says a lot about Lydia's character when she goes to her child's schoolyard bully. You know, she effectively takes all of the wrath that she is capable of in more subtle ways, and she points it at her schoolyard bully in only an act of pure love, right? And so it showcases the way in which she is lopsided as a character. Because again, she might be capable of great love for that one person, but her way of handling sort of protecting that one person is still really awful, which stays true to her character and her who she is. As we wrap up, I really want to say that part of Tara's punishment sort of is was the only part of the film that wasn't really working for me because it almost felt like it was setting up another hour of the movie when she is forced to exile herself to the Philippines because she can't get a composing job in Europe or in the United States. But and and that was like a very brief period of time where the Philippines is shown. It's shown for like 10 minutes. And even though like it raises questions that I really wanted to explore of like how is her life there? And if Tartu was ever made, I would actually want to see her life within Asia and in the Philippines and how she tries to not necessarily redeem herself, but how she tries to survive this new sort of reality that she's in. But I still thought that the ending, the true ending was really really well done yeah the moment when she punched elliot in the face that felt like the ending and the rest of it felt like a rather extensive and less engaging epilogue the Elliot part, absolutely, but I was also referring to, because that to me was the climax of the movie in, in a lot of ways, because the epilogue essentially functioned as a denouement. But the, the actual ending where she's like composing in front of an audience in the Philippines was really poignant, and I don't think a lot of people got it, but... I, I still feel like still a lot of people did. I don't know. And, and it's such a confusing thing because the people who would watch Tar are not the people who I think would get sort of this reference that's happening. So who is she composing for? Yes, I... 
Or sorry, for conducting for. Yeah, she's conducting for, you know, this Filipino orchestra that is not necessarily tied to anything, but they are composing literally the soundtrack for a video game called Monster Hunter in front of cosplaying fans of the series of Monster Hunter. So going from playing both Mahler's music and talking about Bach and Juilliard and then going down to essentially like compose video game music in front of fans is going from the highest of art to the lowest of art and the beginning to the end. And to me, it was really interesting because I was like, well, I love video game music. That to me is also like has like a very strong ladder and in itself is rising up to be high art as well in certain spheres. But the fact that it was so particular to Tar's sort of uh, distaste, I want to say, it was almost like the perfect hell curated for her. And I couldn't think of a better punishment for her. The tough thing is that she has to find the beauty in what is typified as low art, yet still that low art is something that millions of people enjoy every single day. Exactly. And I mean, you see it, that the audience is packed in that concert hall. But like I said, I think it was also really po- poetic in that sense, because as you said, like when there is a, a really small scene where she's rehearsing with this Filipino band, orchestra band, and she's actively do- saying the same thing of like she said in the beginning when she was studying Mahler, she was like, okay, this is what I think the composer is trying to say with these melodies. And it's so brilliant because she still gives 200% to the work she's studying, as you said. But to her, it still feels like hell and we still see it. Tiny little cracks she shows. And that in itself, I I think to me, even though the epilogue is in some ways frustrating, in other ways, it's brilliant. Totally. It's absolutely not without value. Speaking of video games, this has been another episode of Zeitgeist. We are closing off our Oscar talk. For those watching the Oscars next week, I will be tuning in alongside you for that. And next month, we're going to be talking about The Last of Us, which is a video game adaptation on HBO. And we're also going to be covering the video game adaptation of something that has been long in the piping of Hollywood, which is the Mario Brothers movie. So until then, I am Jordan Conrad. And I am Nevo Boss. And we are signing off of Zeitgeist. We will see you all next month. Happy Oscar watching.